0: Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world, from current events and trends through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, and welcome to our RazorWire podcast. Absolute pleasure to be here again. I'm here joined by Oliver Rochford from, well, I'll let him introduce himself. He's probably the best bet. He's just had a recent change, so.
1: Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I work for a company called Securonix. We do uh, next-generation SIEM and SOAR and some UEBA stuff as well. And my role there, as you mentioned, has just changed. I used to be a security evangelist there, but I've just moved into the data science research team as an applied
0: security director. Fantastic. And of course, I'm James Rees. I'm the managing director of Razor Thorn. I'm a QSA. I've been in InfoSec for 25 years. Uh, I'm also a lead auditor for ISO 27001. Pretty much dealt with most types of technology and been the CISO for a number of different companies. So today, we're going to talk about something extremely topical. Uh, The world seemingly is going through a massive, massive change. We've just come out of a pandemic, Um, we've had sort of big economic problems that have come out from that as well. We've had supply chain issues, and we've had now an invasion in a part of the world that has kicked off seemingly a number of cyber attacks on a number of different companies who have pulled out of that particular region and you know there's some revenge t- attacks seemingly going on and all kinds of blame being thrown around by all kinds of people and what we're here to do today is to really kind of debate where are we going in infosec we've had such a dramatic change and shift from the the whole working from home thing and the pandemic and the lockdowns we're seeing seeing you know, a much larger range of ransomware attacks now than we even did during the COVID pandemic, which which is quite frightening. So, Oliver, where are we going? Where do we start? Where do we begin? I think security in itself, uh, one thing I have noticed with, with what's going on is that there's a lot of new products on the market, a lot coming out of Israel, a lot of innovation happening in this space. And I think It's been a long time since we've had that level of innovation, and it has been happening a little while, obviously before the pandemic. But you yourselves uh, have done fantastically, and you've got a fantastic product. And there's a number of other firms out there. It's like you know, endpoint security has had a big comeback from the days of the more traditional products, who will remain nameless because I don't want them to annoy, you know, get annoyed at this but antivirus products that, let's face it, were getting pretty stale. They hadn't really changed in years. You know, They were they were still there to do what they were to do, but we've got so many fresh new products out there now. And I think I'm seeing a lot of people starting to review where they are, the products that they've been using. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think in terms of where we're going, I mean, I think it, it helps us to look at where we're at. Mm. And so we've just had this huge ongoing transition towards cloud. One of the interesting things which I heard back in the day when I was working at Gartner doing the seam coverage, if I mentioned four years ago, uh, sorry, about six years ago to somebody, how about you look at a cloud seam? They would say no. And I just spoke to a former colleague recently who said about 18 to 24 months ago this point occurred where security teams were coming in and saying, I need a cloud seam because the company has told us we're the laggards. Everyone else is on cloud. We need to follow up. And before that, it was a discussion around security, around trust really. Do I trust the cloud provider to look after essentially the most important data versus a security team? That's that's changed because now it's a matter of efficiency, of, of cost, mm-hmm. but more importantly, of scale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the interesting thing. Right now we're in this position where we have a lot of new toys available to us, a lot of scalability toys. But there's this great, great anecdote about Henry Ford who said that if he'd asked his customers what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. And we have a lot of companies who are building a faster horse because mm. they haven't actually realized that what this scale allows us to do is something that they hadn't thought of before. My favorite example for this is people used to limit how much data they collected because it was a performance and price problem. But mm. well, that's changed. No. Now we have loads of data, but we don't actually have the tools to do anything with it because people have developed the tools to deal with, well, little amounts of data and get good results. But of course, that's going to change. So we're at this point now where someone's going to get the idea of we don't need a faster horse. What we actually need is a car. Mm. And, And I think that's where we're going in the moment. But of course, it's still early days because a lot of the stuff that we have now, we've had for a long time. There's this other example in history where In ancient Greece, someone built a steam engine. In fact, multiple steam engines were built throughout history. The problem is they were tiny because you didn't have the supply chain to scale it up. You weren't mining coal. You weren't able to cast Bronx that big and so on. We have all the things in place now to be able to scale up that steam machine. And so I think we're at the cusp of a fantastic paradigm change where machine learning, data analytics at scale, but just really the beginning of this, because these are going to open up brand new avenues. But it's a mindset shift, which we're going through slowly. Mm. And you mentioned the crises we have, you know, basically a lot of crises going. Well, crises are essentially the big drivers of innovation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember who said it, but, you know, I heard a number of quotes saying that, you know, war has been some of the, the fastest, evolution in technology than any other part in history. And let's face it, we were all going towards a more working from home thing anyway. You know, we have been for a while now. But there was still that kind of mistrust, especially from some of the older generations of business owners. You know, my staff isn't in front of me or they're not within walking distance from me. I can't trust they're doing the jobs, you know. So that mindset kind of went through. But then when the pandemic and the lockdowns forced everybody home, we suddenly saw a massive shift and obviously people saw benefit in that. They saw the the fact that they could save money on the corporate offices. They could save money lending people their train ticket money every, every year. You know, those people sort of saved on their train tickets. But it also meant we had to very rapidly scale up our capabilities in the technological sense for dealing with endpoints that are in very, very diverse locations In a a variety of different environments, and there was a shift from well, you know, and it was literally overnight. I mean, I I remember in the UK when Boris turned around and said, "Right, that's it, everyone's locked down." There was this mass scramble, and it was a good time to be a provider of you know communications, VPN software, that kind of thing, because all of a sudden everybody bought it because I had to, and they had to scale up. And something you mentioned as well, the kind of going to as a service thing. You know, go back. 15 years and the the thought of taking your key assets and putting giving them to someone else to manage and look after and all the rest of it was it almost inconceivable. There was a few people who did. Mm-hmm. But now it's almost that's it. You know, I was, third party security has become a big, big thing for a lot of my customers, you know, because you're only as secure as your weakest link. And all of these different changes, you know, going, move, the movement to virtualization, the movement to cloud based technologies, the as a service thing, which now every, I don't know anything that isn't as a service at the moment. Yeah. More and more of it has led to more and more innovation. And then the situation that we're in in the last two years has forced us to adopt it a lot faster, a lot quicker. Um, maybe when some companies weren't ready, but they saw the benefits of it. And when people start to see the benefits of something, their mindset changes, and then all of a sudden, you've got very, very productive companies full of very happy people who are working from home or the coffee shop or wherever it is they want to work. And they're saving so much on, on the day-to-day cost of having having the infrastructure to service, say, 1,000 people or 2,000 people, or if you're talking one of the bigger infrastructures. I mean, it's something I mentioned in one of my, other, my one of my other videos was it HSBC is shutting down more and more branches at the moment, and it's all going to online. That's great if you are an advocate for online services, but there are a lot of people who want to be able to go in and chat to somebody when there's a problem rather than trying to discuss it over the telephone or trying to, you know, with somebody who's, let's face it, English, English is probably not their first language, but also through the, like the chat bots, which is the, the big favorite thing at the moment. I mean, obviously, we're here to talk about security, but it's it's interesting how that definite shift in the usage of technology has also started to nudge security in a, in a different direction as well. CDR is becoming quite a big thing now. We've got a number of customers who are looking at that. And this is all technology has been around for a while, you know, but nobody's really adopted it. And then boom, all of a sudden, multi-factor authentication, Many people were resistant for that for years. You know, they didn't want to have to type a code into a little calculator thing on their keyring, which is the original way you did it, carry around a token and risk losing or breaking the token. Now, you've got predominantly a large amount of the, those types of multi-factor authentication happening on your phone because you never lose your phone. Well, you do, but it's something you always keep with you. What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, you know, I, so I, I think that there's very there huge shifts, as you mentioned, going on in terms of um, how we're using technology. But there's also a lot of learning going on. I mean, it, if we look at one example, like we, we talk about skill shortage a lot of the time. And somehow people believe that we're going to have millions of people who are going to retrain to be cybersecurity engineers. And of course, that's not going to happen because what's, what's actually happening is that people are using services. If you need a forensic expert, 365 days a year, you have other problems. In reality, you're probably going to need them, not at all, and if you do, for maybe a couple of weeks at a time. And so why would you hire someone full-time for? Them? And you extrapolate that. It's not just one skill set. You need 20, 25 skill sets now in your typical security operations team. So services are going to be a big component of of actually solving the skills crisis. But the other component is not expecting everyone to be an engineer who has hands on Python. I've Mm. seen people move into the industry now who have a background in philosophy, behavioral psychology, law enforcement, criminology, and mathematics and physics. And These are all good traits because security isn't just on a network anymore. We've moved way beyond that. Security has even escaped the confines of just technology. If you look at phishing and social engineering, they've always been there, but they're a much more bigger problem, part of the mm. problem now. And so that's the other thing. We're getting people who are less technical, but for that have a more broader neo-generalist skill set. And from a technology point of view, to me, that has two implications, which we're already seeing. One of them is a push to no code, low code. You know, people talk about citizen developer, or we're going to have a security citizen. There's a similar trend going on in as much as that these aren't typical engineers who have learned to code in C, who have learned C to IP addressing, but they're focused on how criminals behave, on how the law works and so on. But hand in hand with that, and because this is always, you know, two sides of, of a coin, we're going to need better tools. And that also means that we have a push towards the other end where we're seeing, for example, threat hunters now using things like Jupyter Notebook. And what they're essentially doing is they're doing detection engineering. They're doing detection as code because they need a quicker way to develop these tools for the no-code, low-code people. So it's a strange thing. We're seeing we've great shifts in security, which are, they don't seem to be going very quickly. But depending on where you are in the industry, they actually are. Mm. Because I, I, if you go back five years ago, you didn't have Fred Hunters use Jupyter no. Notebook uh, or anything even remotely like that because it's actually not that old. But even they didn't get that close to the metal uh, in terms of being developers. And a part of that is just the amount of data that they have available. You can't just quickly you know, run through petabytes of data basically using a search tool. You need something else to be able to do that. And so I think these are amazing trends pushing our industry in the moment, even if for some people they seem quite hidden because they're actually the people who are consuming the output of it. But if I look at, from our point of view, even as a vendor, how we're developing detections now, how we're dealing with threat intelligence, how we're building ML models, everything has changed. There have been huge changes in that area.
0: The the, the, security, the world of security is a very different place now. And you touch on a really, a really important point. I've seen a lot of different people coming into this space from a lot of different vocations as well. Uh, legal people, people who used to be lawyers, have decided to go into InfoSec. It's like, you're probably pretty highly paid as a lawyer, you know. So why would you come into InfoSec? But hey, you know, if it's something that you're interested in. You know, I've met people from all walks of life. I mean, the, the back back when I first got in, it was usually IT. It was it was usually IT, maybe finance, maybe compliance. But it, you had to have some kind of technical background. And you're right, security is not just about the tech. You know, the net technology. It's a, a significant chunk of it, yeah, because that's the tools that we use in order to manipulate the data, to store the data, to to manage our assets, just like anything. But security now I, you know there's specializations i never never thought would you know crop up again you know friends you're right with the forensics people there's always been forensics people but there's not been that many of them comparatively to others because you know, as you say you the average firm might only need to use them once maybe twice in a a couple of years you know unless i'm lucky enough to have something really serious happen but the resurgence in the interest in InfoSec has has led me to, I mean, we've got a massive lack of CISOs at the moment. Everybody wants a CISO. We just don't have them. You know, all the good ones have been have been sort of sucked up and, and are, are very well, being very well paid, or they've started their own businesses, or their data, you know, moving into the data science side of things which has left this massive hole. And I think we've touched on it on other videos, but I don't see the volume of staff we need with the experience that we need. Because a lot of these people coming in from vocations outside of IT, they kind of trip over themselves a little bit when they come into this space because the expectation from a lot of people who are outside this vocation, the security vocation, still view it as very much an IT problem. So there's this massive disconnect and of course, they're not technical people. So when people start talking to them about IDS, IPS, and the the, the nuances of of the TCP/IP handshake and how firewalls work and how rule sets work and so on and so forth, they they sit there and go, "What the hell are you talking about?" And it's like, "You're you're meant to be an infosec person, aren't you?" <laughs> you know, but we can't be good at everything at the end of the day. But equally, I think again, I hate using the pandemic. There's been a big stutter in the university and college learning to get new people into this space over that time period. You know, we were already facing a significant shortage in a few years, as you quite rightly pointed out, to ramp up to to the next generation of InfoSec people who would come in and, you know, make this market even bigger than it actually is at the moment. Wonder, I'm, I'm worried that that's, that's not going to happen for another couple of years now because they're playing catch-up now. You know, the people who wanted to go in two years ago to do InfoSec, actual InfoSec vocations, not computer science with a one module of, of, of InfoSec. They either put it off because they had to, because they couldn't get into the country, because a lot of them, you know, I did a lot of guest lecturing for, for a couple of universities in my time. And there's a lot of foreign students who come here to learn cybersecurity. Very few English, which I found very, very odd. Maybe that's changed now, but they've had two years where they it, it, the whole university life thing has been kind of a, a stop. <laughs> so we've, we've got two more years.
1: I mean, on the one hand, I think that I don't think we're ever going to fill all of those positions because it's not as though we have this huge untapped pool of people who are highly intelligent, who are just waiting to go into cyber. And the question is, well, where do we take them from? Do we take them from medicine? Do we hmm. take them out of, you know what I mean? So... It, uh, we're going to be able to fill some of those, and I think, as you mentioned, the, the delay is there. But it, that's not just our industry; that's a that's no, a societal no. thing. Yeah. At the same time, of course, we're going to have to start looking to other strategies, services, automation. We're going to have to start um, adjusting expectations. You know, we could keep going back to the recruitment because I say there, there is no skills crisis; there's a recruitment crisis. Mm. Recruiters don't know how to recruit security people. And there are examples of that popping up all the time where they're asking for a very specific skill set. My favorite example is they don 't ask for someone who knows vulnerability assessment; they want someone who can use tenable or quality yeah and that that is crazy that might work that way in other in other fields in our field it doesn't, but the recruiters don't have the knowledge yeah to be to be better at this, so that's one area where we can fix things increasing adoption of automation admittedly. Vendors aren't very good at building good automation yet, but that's something where we have to step up as well on both sides. Vendors have to build better automation and users have to be more open to it. And also having better job descriptions, responsibilities. Mm -hmm. If we wanted everyone to be a proper hands-on techie, we'd never fill those
0: positions.
1: (laughs) That's a rare skill set or a rare mindset to begin with let alone to trying to fill hundreds of thousands of extra positions. In fact, we wouldn't even attract the people that we need, because what they're attracted to, if I look at, you know, the diversity is a very good example, but we have a lot of people who are attracted into cybersecurity because communication skills are highly regarded. Mm. We have a BISO now, a business information security officer, not just a CISO as an example. That's one of the trends coming up. And so having a clearer demarcation, being able to say that, okay, do we need an infosec guide? to do the firewall changes or can we use like like just the networking admin guide for it? Where right now people I see InfoSec people doing jobs which probably isn't their best usage of the time if they're rare. And, And lastly of course, you know, using more services. For that, service providers also need to step up their game. They're trying to make it easy to sell rather than easy to consume, which I think is a problem. And also end users having better expectations, realizing that you're looking for a partner, not just someone to ditch the work onto. Yeah. You know, you can't just outsource your security. You can outsource security tasks. But yeah. you still need to be driving.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and and you drive upon a, a, an interesting point there, you know. I have come across some companies who completely outsource security before, and 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 they almost get a little bit angry when you say, "Well, who's got ultimate responsibility?" Because you can't just palm it off to somebody else. You know, you've got to have somebody who's responsible within the organisation who holds these assets, provides these critical functions, critical pieces to corporates or society. You know, especially if you're uh, an energy firm or a water company providing water whatever you, ultimately the responsibility of delivering your services with you and the security of that service is also with you you can outsource as you say tasks you can have people advising you you can bring all kinds of people into the mix but ultimately it's it's the accountability still sits at the at the board level but that's that's also something i've seen significantly change for many many years CISOs, information security managers, as they were called before the CISO sort of role became as big as it was, uh, was always in IT. We're seeing a lot more uh, compliance and legal departments being in control of security now. And in, in in you know security being its own department, there's been quite a big shift in the mindset. And we still come across companies that are very Top heavy on tools they don't use. You know, I'm very keen when I first go into an organization who are who are saying, you know, help us out here. We need to modernize our security. We're seeing all these problems happening in the media. We've had, you know, usually a competitor that's that that's had a significant problem. We need to we need to modernize everything. And the first thing I do is say, right, what have you got in place? And as you said, it's tool after tool after tool after tool. And it's like, right, okay. Have you done any business impact assessments? Have you done any kind of like risk management? Have you done any... Do you know what your critical assets are? What is it you want us to protect? Because we need to protect people from social engineering attacks and make sure their awareness is there. We need to protect the company, which I'm guessing is what the BISOs now do. With the policies, the procedures, the the protecting you through making sure your contracts with your service providers have the right to audit and have security as part of the you know part of the contract. Yeah, you can you can tell me you've got IDS, IPS all you like, but more often than not, when I when I have actually have a look at the dashboard, I find it's still in learning mode. And I say, how long have you had this? And they're like, oh, we've had this for like three years now. Uh, We probably need to update it. I said, and and I have caught myself a few times saying, well, you probably need to turn it on. How much does this cost you? And it's like, well, it's like 150 grand a year. It's 150 grand a year for something that's not even doing the job that it's there to do, you know. I always say, security doesn't need to be expensive. It just needs to be effective. You can do security on a shoestring. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, And that's a whole other video I think me and you are going to do at another time. You know what's the appropriate budget for for security, and I think we'll get Don back for that because he has some good idea. He has some good points uh, to to say on that. But security is still horribly underfunded. I think it is shifting, but I don't know with the, such a lack of experienced infosec people, and people having to take on info newer infosec people who are newer to the to the field um, at a much earlier sort of part of their career than feasibly they they. They probably should be looking, but they've got no choice. Mm-hmm. I've even come across a few salespeople who who think they're information security gurus. And I'm like, what? Oh, I've got my CISSP. Right. That doesn't, doesn't tell us that you're good at what you do. You know, it says you kind of passed an exam. Well done. You know, you read the book. Security is becoming such a big part of business as usual now that... We need to just sit down to sit back, I think, as an organization. Or organizations, especially the larger ones, need to sit down and look objectively at what they're trying to achieve with it. Because I think if you sat a lot of those guys down now, they would still say, oh, this is, you know, this is all about the IT side of it. We just want you to concentrate on the IT. I,
1: I think, in reality, security is it's already quite expensive, right? I, I yeah. mean, we, we talk about not having enough budgets, but how much percentage of your revenue can you spend on something that doesn't generate more revenue? Yeah. And, and, and we're hitting a limit there, I would, I would say already. Part of it is because we're bolting on security. It was very interesting this week that the chief information security of Microsoft was saying that we need to bake security into the metaverse. We can't bolt it on on the end. And I, I laugh because people have been saying this about cloud, about IoT, about everything, and we've never done <laughs> but, but it's part of the solution. It, it is true. I, I've made an argument for a long time that if, if, if you can get somebody in a bug bounty program to find your bugs, you're not spending enough to find them yourself. And the reality is that there's no minimum requirement there. You, you, can, you can shove out really, really shoddy software. If you're important enough, it doesn't matter. And I was trying to build security on the back. It's a crazy idea. Now, yeah. we're not going to be able to get 100% security, but if we can shift that pillar up a bit, it makes the other pillars more manageable. Yeah. And that's the thing. This is like, there's, there isn't a single solution to any of this. But that, that is definitely a part of it. We need to increase security across the board in the development lifecycle, yeah. when we pick and deploy stuff and how we operate with it. I don't prescribe to the idea that we're going to train our way out of this. I don't want most of my colleagues to be paranoid. I'm glad they're not. It's a Mm. good thing. Giving them awareness training might raise the bar a little bit. Not enough to to defeat hackers. I'm sorry. Even I am going to click on a phishing email at some point in the next couple of years when I'm having a bad day or I'm tired because we're having a baby or whatever. This is just going to happen. We can't rely on on just that. But it's it's another part of the puzzle, right, where we can invest in and we can get a little bit of improvement. Mm. But it needs to be improvement across the board. And I think that's a bigger challenge, because even if we do this across 70% of our tax surface, that other 30% mitigates almost everything else we've done. And that's, that's the other problem. So you improve your people, but you still don't patch. Or you improve your patching, yeah. but you don't improve your people. It doesn't matter. The hackers are looking for any gap to get in. And so we have to raise that overall. But more importantly, we have to raise it in the places where you get the most ROI. Yeah. And trying to bolt it on the end isn't high ROI. Not by itself, it's intended to cover what you didn't fix elsewhere. And I say that because I, you know, a colleague of mine, Augusto Barros, also an ex-Gartner analyst, he went on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago because somebody told him security has failed. And it's like saying that medicine has failed because we haven't cured death, <laughs> <laughs> which just doesn't work that way. We're trying to improve things, to extend your life, to make sure that when something happens, it's not the worst. But to say that we failed because how do you fix something when you have an adversary? When you have an opponent? When you have yeah. somebody who is actively basically in an arms race with you? You can't. Yeah. There's no winning or fixing there.
0: It is. It's like a battle, isn't it? You know, one side tools up, ready to go. The other side then looks at what they're doing, tools up, and and starts to innovate. Well, as we said before, you know, war's great innovation. We are fighting this constant battle, not only with with our adversaries, the ones who are trying to get in to steal everything, but also quite often with our own management to ex- try to explain to them why they need security, why security is important. And ROI, for instance, you know, that has been an issue, I think, in the InfoSec now for, well, since I first got in. How do you prove the return on the investment in security if you've not had an event? Now, there are ways to do it. But still, ultimately, to an individual who's not a security person, they're going to say, Well, we spent how much, you know, spent 10 million quid on security last year. We haven't had any problems. So, well, that's kind of why you haven't had any problems. (laughs) Because if you didn't spend 10, if you spent nothing, you would see problems. You'd see problems cropping up all over the place. But I can't tell you we've protected you from an event that hasn't happened due to some countermeasure that's been put in place, be it uh, a governance countermeasure, you know. Or, you know, stopping salespeople from downloading the database willy-nilly and heading off to their, you know, your biggest competitor, which has always been a security problem, you know, as, as well as a sales problem and a business problem. It's all the same thing. You know, you don't want your you don't want your key assets disappearing off into the ether or being procured by someone else. But if they haven't had an event, it's very hard to to sometimes to convince people. I mean, I love the film The Big Short, and one of my favourite scenes is when is when that guy is standing there and he's saying, "Look, I am offering you fire insurance as your house is burning in front of you." And when you look at that film and all the people that said they were crazy at right, the right at the beginning, they portrayed them all obviously through film. But they said, you know, we got knocked back and told we were crazy, told where to go, and then boom, it happens, and all of a sudden, all those same naysayers were the ones who were trying desperately to fix it, uh, and then saying, oh, well, I fixed it. You know, it's like, God, come on, guys. You know, security is tough at the best of times because, I mean, as you've probably come across multiple times, when security is working fine, it is nice and quiet. You know, it's, it's all running fine. You have a few little events that you need to look at, that kind of thing. But when a proper event kicks off, when a proper security event kicks off, It snowballs fast. I mean, faster than you could ever imagine. It goes from, oh, we've just detected an event to all of a sudden the CEOs having to sit there with the PR officers saying, we take the data of our customers very seriously. When evidently, according to the people reading that on the outside, saying, well, how? Because you've just had a security event where all our payment card data has disappeared or it's been stolen and it's now being sold on the the dark web. It's a tough one in security. I've been rebuilding, actually, the kind of defense in depth stack. And I've been trying to do this for a while. And I did start kind of when the lockdown started ending because I thought, okay, right, I've got a bit of time. You know, things have migrated, things have changed. So what do we need to, to now consider? You know, things like cyber liability insurance, love it or hate it. PR, that kind of thing, to be included into the that defense in depth stack. Yeah, I then obviously all of this kicked off over in Russia and you know Ukraine. And I've had to completely redo it. That's how fast it changes. And we we as you say, you know, drawing round back to what we were saying before, the tools that we have are still being innovated. They're they're not perfect, no tool ever is, to be honest, but We're still working on getting really concrete workable tools to allow security people to do the job that they're to do, but we don't necessarily have enough security people who are experienced enough to use them or even understand what's coming out of them. We don't have enough budgets to be able to buy half of those tools in the first place. We have to cherry pick which ones are important. The amount of companies, even big companies now that don't have GRC tools, they don't have good quality uh, GRC databases, stuffed full of like historical information so they can do risk management You know, in an easier format than doing it on Excel mm-hmm. and trying to remember what, what happened before and trying to remember the nuances behind it. Um, but it's now become, as far as I'm concerned, once a firm reaches a certain size, an absolute must. You've got to have some medium to be able to allow your security people to do what they need to do. But you don't have the tools... half the time you don't have the budget, you can't prove the ROI, and you still have all these people knocking on your door, you know, malicious actors who who they're not stopping. If anything, they're speeding up. For every dollar that they manage to get out of you or your organization, they're not stupid. They'll spend a good chunk of that, probably more than most companies would, on securing themselves because they have to worry. If they get caught, they go to prison. They have all their assets stripped of them. If a business gets gets done by a malicious actor, they lose a couple of million. Oh, well, you know, we can make a few more. But for some organizations, it destroys them. You know, we've seen plenty go under. You know,
1: the, 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 a lot of people are really unhappy with security because they consider it a burden. And it's something that we don't understand. They don't understand why we can't attribute it, why we can't prosecute people, why we can't stop it. And you notice that by people seeking silver bullets or saying, can't we automate this? It's a sign of frustration, really, having that attitude. Like I always argue the fact that the first strong AI or strong automation will not come in security. We don't invest enough. It will come in, in, in medicine, in finance, where they actually have a huge monetary gain out of doing that. We use what other people develop for the most part. And so that, that's the first, I think, fallacy in thinking that way. But more importantly, we keep coming back to the fact that there's an adversary. If this was just a business process, we could automate it, most likely, Mm. just like we're automating things in other areas. But uh, one example which I have always have a counter is shoplifting measures. Shoplifting measures is something that most shops invest in. It reduces um, uh, roughly 50% of all losses through that technology. And it's easy for a shop to see if it works or not. Just don't do it. You know, if you don't have any measures in place, you will see that that this investment is worth it. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, but but business people, a lot of business people look at it as an annoying thing. And it is an annoying thing. But nevertheless, there's a changing of the guard, I think, of executives who understand that this is part of doing business in a digital world. Mm-hmm. If you're getting the benefit out of having IT, well, if you have a car, you, you have MOT, you have services. You yes. have insurance. People will pay that. The same people who complain about investing in security will happily give up smoking or eat better for their health. Mm. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's almost the same. It's just that oftentimes they're not explained what's going on there sufficiently. But the fact that there are people out there attacking you, that's a pertinent point. It's not up to you whether you get attacked. Mm. It's up to the attacker. And, and so I think that's a fundamental difference between security and most other areas. If it weren't for cyber criminals, for nation states, we wouldn't be in this business at all for the few malicious yeah. insiders. I don't think the damage would be big enough. And it's a crazy circumstance if you think about the fact that they let engineers like me loose on spies. Where else do you have that?
0: Mm.
1: Is, does that is that in any other industry where you let basically civilians loose on, on soldiers? Probably not. But that's what we have, which is also, I think, a unique circumstance for cybersecurity, something which a lot of business leaders don't appreciate. The fact that once you're on the internet, whether it's a cyber criminal in Russia or whether it's a spy in North Korea, all of them can target you. It's a very thin wall that we're standing on there to protect businesses. But it's also a, a change in perception, which I think some of the smarter executives have already taken on board. And some of the older executives will probably learn the hard way once. Yeah. Because we've started seeing businesses getting fined for this. We've started seeing executives oh, yeah. being fired for this. That's, that's, that's one of the positives coming out of the crises. People start mm. taking things seriously.
0: Absolutely. I hate trying to, you know, I hate going over some of the things in, 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 in security and InfoSec because they, they sound profoundly negative. But I mean, the the good parts about Infosec for any of you out there who are hoping to get into it, want to get into it. I don't know of many vocations where you have to be as adaptable, as quick thinking. But yeah, no, it, it is. You know, you you have to be able to think on your feet because you know when the when the malicious actors are in there, sort of you know trying desperately to 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 reach your backups and and then kick off their ransomware. You we've caught a couple of groups who are starting to, to go down that route uh, for customers. And it is, a, it's like, it is like being in a battle a fight. You know, I do medieval battle reenactment. I know what it's like to be in a fight. And it's basically exactly the same thing, only I'm not carrying a sword at that point. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, right, where's this guy's target? Where's he going for? Where can I trap him? Where's he coming from, more importantly? And what back doors has he put in before we've discovered it? And it is good fun. It's great fun. And of course, when security is being done right, you know, you have some great tools. You've got some great people in there. Some of my favorite people are InfoSec people because you've got just that certain level of sarcasm, certain level of cynicism, and a certain level of reality bites kind of view that you kind of develop. You have to have a sense of humor in this business because if you didn't have a sense of humor, you'd probably cry. And you won't last very long in a board if you're, if you're sobbing.
1: The battle that never ends, but but I mean, on, on the bright side, there's a huge variety within the industry. I, from hands-on engineering to detective mm. work, to to being a news junkie. Mm. These are all areas. Like if you think of working in threat intelligence, if you think of working as a threat hunter, if you think of working as a firewall admin, and that that's I think something that's also underappreciated. The fact that now at this stage of maturity of how the world is evolving, the importance of digital infrastructure. There isn't just one cybersecurity job or field. It's a no. huge spread, which I think is a positive for attracting talent as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, again, 20 years ago, you'd have one, you'd have basically someone like me sat there and you'd be expected to do all of that with with literally no tools, because there wasn't any tools available back then, not like we have now. Technology was a lot more, a lot less wizard driven. So you really had to know your stuff as well. It was very, very hard. But now the vocations in InfoSec are almost endless. As you, you've mentioned a few, like BISO, you know, the CISO, more traditional CISO, you've got pen testing. Intelligence is a really interesting one because we were all kind of expected to know pretty much what's going on in the underground by our bosses at any time. It was expected, you know, you're the InfoSec person. Of course you must know what's going on. It's like, mm. I don't really have a lot of time to do that at the best of times, but there's a whole vocation now around people who just solely towards getting into places that are kind of hard to get into to get access. And of course, once they've provided their intel to the to re- relevant people, if it, it's it's very quickly discovered by the people they've just infiltrated. And then, of course, they've got to start it all over again. It is like going undercover as a cop, only you know, you're not worried about the drug dealer's kind of shooting you on the spot it depends on the group i suppose really some of them are some of them are funded through various different means and they're very diverse like any business should be in their revenue streams but it is it is good i mean the the opportunities in this space are, are boundless at the moment and of course as we said there's people crying out for people with any skills in infosec any skills at all so it's not all doom and gloom for you guys out there yeah our tools are still Evolving and, and Oliver, you, you mentioned like machine learning and AI. I can't wait to have AI companion that can do that horrible like log, log review work. You know, mm. here's 10,000 logs, you've got to find that little needle in that haystack. I'd love to be able to turn around to, to an AI and so say, just pop in and find, find that info for me because they they'll do that in a second. Yeah. Take me a day and a half.
1: And they uh, are. There are prototypes. Right? I, mean, I mean, I say prototype. There are things actually being sold in production by a few companies, but it's early days yet. We're working on mm-hmm. stuff like that. There are a couple of other vendors. And a lot of it, oddly enough, is approached in a supervised manner. So mm-hmm. by learning from actual investigators and threat hunters and codifying that, basically training an ML model, and then reapplying that. So we're getting there. You know, with Alexa for security, I think we're going to see within five years and we already have the basic building blocks in place in, in, I would say, already being sold. It's just scaling it up, putting it all together, in, improving that accuracy, making it a little bit more versatile. Right now, they're focused on very specific problems and they have a, still a margin of error, which means that they need to have a person vet what they're doing. But we're getting there quickly. And I, I can tell you, like, watch this space, we have something like that in the works, right? But I uh, but I also know of other teams who are working on it. That's why.
0: I mean, I I, I love the idea of AI and, and ML. I I mean I personally, you know, I see it as a as a as an extension of yourself, really. Once we start getting that out, you're still gonna need to have somebody making the decisions. I mean, some some people will be happy for computers to make the decision. Mm-hmm. When it when it really boils down to it, I think, you know, if you could have a piece of software, in, in essence, that can advise you on what is going on within the infrastructure, you know, technical infrastructure, let's face it. Uh, what's going on? Where is it happening? What are you seeing? You know, give me the story of what you're seeing, not give me the 20 million logs that you've seen from various different sources. Look at the scene engine and tell me what the bloody hell's going on from your perspective, and I'll tell you how to, how to feasibly deal with it. I can't wait for that kind of situation. I will, if you... If you guys at uh, uh developed that, I'm more than happy to start being an advocate for that one. I'll be your test subject. Imminent.
1: I- and it's interesting because it's another topic, which is the, attack. I mentioned no code, low code earlier. And another one yeah. of these trends, which is coming up, is data storytelling. And in the case of security, yeah. this means really constructing narratives out of the attack. Yeah. Basically following that sequence of events because, you know, going back to the fact that we're not going to have, all of these people coming in with this engineering mindset, being able to look at logs and constructing a narrative out of that is a rare skill. But it's a trivial thing for machine learning to solve. Mm. In reality, if it knows what to look for. And so that's that's a big push coming there. So data storytelling in the form of outlining attack life cycles or attack narratives is going to be a big topic that's growing. At the same time, more generally visualizing attacks is going to be a big thing. Yeah. You know, we talk about graph networks as a very good example where Microsoft is working with that. We're working on that. There's a bunch of other companies also doing that um, where you're essentially looking at individual incidents as nodes and you can see the correlation, basically the connections between them or even people and incidents yeah. and, and, and assets and so on. So that's that's the, the baby steps going down the data storytelling um, path. But that's going to increase too, yeah.
0: That's the missing key part, I think, for for any InfoSec person. There's a couple of products out there, you know, in the scene world, in the kind of log management world that that will that will do that in very raw forms. But that's what we're missing because as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, when a malicious actor attacks, they you don't, it's not like you just look at one log and go, ah, it's like, where have they been exfiltrating through? Yes, okay, that's the, back, that's the compromised account they used. But where have they gone? Where have they been? Yeah. Tell me, give me the story of what they're doing. I mean, I, I looked at one product once uh, a little while back. It's a good product. I won't, I won't mention who it is. But I read through the example that they gave of these logs that it, it generated and showed us. And it was obvious it was a salesperson who was on his way out the door, downloading the database, putting it on a local USB, strategically wiping certain fields from you know customers that he'd been obviously dealing with. But the log set you would get that from is so vast. You mentioned data lakes before. Data lakes are so vast. There's so much information in that you and I couldn't sit there and pull everything we need to figure out what an event is in any quick time period. You know, we've also got a day job to do for Christ's sake. So I can't wait for the ability to do that, you know, visual mapping as well. One of the the harder things, and I spoke with a doctor of technology who works out of Silicon Valley once, uh, not once, it was actually recently, and he's, hopefully he's going to come on the podcast. I'll try and get you two together, you'll like him. Um, Dr. Marty is cool. They're doing a lot of that kind of, trying to, build of, of visualization of security and a 3D modeling effect nowadays, because you can't do it on a flat plane. We've got third parties over there doing one thing. You've got data sat over there in another service provider's vendor. You've got your payment applica- you know, application down here being managed by this, that, and the other. And it's really hard to track where your key vulnerabilities are, especially with, the, with, a, with a world now where everything's as a service and third-party driven you're reliant on their security. So not only are you having to manage your security, you're having to check that they're doing what they're doing right. They may say it, but who knows, you know? So I think there's a, a lot more, I think there needs to be a little bit more work in the governance space, definitely in this, this area. You know, pulling together key tools that can allow us to pull together the data that we need and then AI, machine learning to help, sift through the myriad of stuff that we've got and just give us the raw information that we need to be able to improve things and really spend our budgets in the right place, you know, put effort in the right areas. You know, are we seeing... When we did the phishing checks last year and 20% of people clicked on them, when we did it this year, it was 10%. Is that because our security awareness training is doing well? Is it because people are becoming, you know, because we put in a product that helps mitigate that. What's the you know, what's the investment we've put in that space or, to reduce that or what's by the phishing
1: email. Or what's the phishing email less convincing, which I've never let yeah. people look? <laughs> right? And so so but but you're right. It, it's um, um I mean I'm a big fan of automation. Most automation doesn't need to be machine learning or AI driven. We're, we're using it very little. And and Anton Shavakin at Google talks about autonomics. And autonomics really comes from the the uh, essentially your nerve, central nerve system, you do things automatically. You don't have to think about breathing. Imagine yeah. you took three steps, you have to stop and breathe. <laughs> and then you took three steps, and then you have to think about something. You'd get nowhere and you'd be out yeah. of breath all of the time. In reality, we can walk and breathe and still think all at the same time. And that's how automation needs to be. I mean, at Zechronix, we just released our sore product. It's not a standalone product. You buy it with the seam or not at all. It's in the same console. I'm not trying mm. to do a pitch. This is more about that automation shouldn't be separate from analytics. It should no. be included in it. And that's the first step. But, but the other thing is, is just the fact that we are visual creatures, right? Mm. Um, we, we evolved in the trees, up there. smell doesn't help you. We're one of the few animals, well, predators, who track via sight. Mm. We look at tracks in the ground we don't smell. And you can see this very easily sometimes if you have the right use case. And there's this company in the US called Ingle Security. They're actually like, a, like an incident response retainer. But they've developed a product, which is virtual reality, augmented reality, which shows in 3D network topology. And I saw this demo when I was at Gartner where they showed a brute force attack. And it was fantastic because I could see it. Yeah. I could see the connection attempt hammering it. There was no threat intelligence. All it was, was IAM locks. And it was such an eye-opener to me the fact that there are certain things which you can see visually which would be harder to discern in locks. Because you have you had thousands of alerts there, but you just saw this hammering. Basically, almost like someone hammering against a door where you could actually see the brute forcing in action. And so that's the other part. We need to focus more on how people naturally work, which means being more visual, focusing more on storytelling because we're storytelling animals. Mm-hmm. Everything we do, we do in the form of a narrative or a story. And... We're not doing security that way. But if you look at other areas, if you look at, for example, data analytics more generally, they're going down that path. Mm. It is becoming, if you look at cloud observability, also becoming far more visual in terms of being able to show how the individual cloud components are built. And it's an abstraction, but still, our brains can deal with abstractions. But what we want is more visual information, especially as we have a far more diverse workforce in cybersecurity, not just. Old nerds like us,
0: you know. <laughs> I mean, I've wanted VR representations of network infrastructure for a long time. So, you, you know, you can actually interact with it and figure out what's going on and where it's going. Again, it's that storytelling thing that we talked about where attacks migrate. They don't... A lot of people think an attack is just like, boom, you get attacked. And then you say to them, right, what do you mean attacked? Well, did, they, did they get in? Did they leave back doors? Oh, no, they stole data. Right. But what did they leave when they left? They didn't just come in and nick your data. It's, it's not like a group of people with a car smashing in your, your jewellery window and grabbing a load of jewels and running off. That's not how, how cybercrime works. We all know this. The visual element of that, I think, is really, really important. And the storytelling, again, we always get asked, what happened? How did it happen? Tell me what happened. And we do always deliver it in a story format. And maybe that's partially some of the difficulty we have because it sounds like a, a crazy story. When you actually when you actually look at how attacks work, the kind of thought process that malicious actors go through, it is kind of hard to communicate that to people who are non-security people. I mean, part, half my family still think I'm a hoodie-wearing dude with Matrix code drifting down my screen all day long as I tap as quickly and as furiously as possible. And I'm like, no, no, it's not the way this works. It sounds really cool, and hopefully one day I'll go into the Matrix. But uh, you know, in a realistic world, security is, takes takes a long time to develop some of yeah. these attacks and vulnerabilities. And okay, yeah, they might have a hoodie and they might live in their mum's basement, but some of these people are some of the most dangerous people you'll find on the planet because some of the stuff they can do can really affect not just you, but but whole communities of people, organizations rise and fall very quickly due to security events. Look at SolarWinds. They're still around, but my God, they're probably gasping for breath and it wouldn't surprise me if somebody's... They're hoping somebody will come along with a DFIB unit at some point because it takes one event and you lose all credibility. You lose all ability to...
1: Trust, because yeah. especially in security companies, people are trusting you implicitly. Yeah that's the biggest currency of a security vendor
0: trust not just vendors, I think it's also for security people as well you know it's once you lose the trust of your employer and it's hard, kind of easy to do without you really it being your fault if if they have a security event, it's very quick to blame the security person why didn't you why didn't you fix you know why didn't you stop it? I could stop right. a lot of things, but there's always going to be something that comes in it's about how we responded, how we fixed it not. Oh, my God, you've let something into the company once. It's like, well, that's going to happen. Malware malware will get in at some point. But as long as you've got the tools, you've got the processes, you've got the people who can handle all of that, you're on to a winner. And okay, it's not not brilliant that you've had the event. Nobody wants to have an event. Like, nobody wants to crash the car. But if you crash your car, you really want to get a decent mechanic to fix it so you can start driving it again. And security people are kind of like that mechanic. They're not going to stop you from having a crash. I might advise you, we might be able to prevent, I don't know what, six out of ten incidents. As long as we can be there to fix that car as quickly as possible and get it back on the road, or fix your business as quickly as possible and get it back doing what it should be doing, hopefully with the least amount of damage to your reputation. And that's what I mentioned the redoing the security stack. One of the things I've never included before is security PR. This is probably where your marketing would work well. At the end of the day, when you have an event, you've got to be able to communicate what happened efficiently, effectively, not only with people at the ICO, if, if you yeah. have to report, but also to your customers. It's no good, as I said before, saying we take the security, you know, the, the, the security of our customers' data yeah, we take it seriously. If if you've just had an event, it looks stupid. You're better off saying, right, we've detected a, a security event. We are dealing with it at the moment. Once we've got a bit more information as to what's going on, we'll we'll let you guys know. It's, yeah. it's a, a far better message than not saying anything, which is what a lot of them don't. Well, well a lot of them in, do. Indeed.
1: Do. Uh, Homebase, TalkTalk, Talk, and more recently, Okta. Yeah. All of them had... A breach and did a lousy job of pr yep. sony mother of all breaches they too oh. had mandyang speaking to the press sharing what they could they were judged very differently mm. and that's the interesting thing too the same thing happens to different companies but the way they're judged is based on how transparent they are how open they are how they manage that pr crisis communication because having a bunch of partners who are sat there thinking Do I need to jump now? So if I jump and there's no risk, I've spent money for nothing. If I don't jump and there is a risk, I might get whacked. That is the worst place to leave customers, partners, and so on, even your own employees. So managing that PR aspect, during a breach is actually, from a business point of view, the most important thing next to actually working on forensics and so on. And a lot of companies, their first instinct is to bury it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But that means that they're risking looking bad rather than trying to turn a bad situation into a good PR opportunity. Mm. Which is, I don't know, that's not the way I would go from a business point of view, you know? I
0: I think we should probably turn that into another, another session, actually, the PR around... Breaches, what to you know, or breach etiquette, or instant response, or something. We'll have to we'll have to map that one out. But our time is rapidly depleting now, and and I think if if anything, I think to conclude with this, I think the trends in infosec are the business sector is particularly strong at the moment, and I think it's going to be strong for a while yet. We've got active attacks happening. The media is, is going nuts over every single security attack they hear about. It's it's big news all over the place. It's getting to the BBC. It's getting to CNN. No longer is it just like a footnote in the register that only us security and IT people ever really get to see. It's it's now big. Pro- and as you say, there are people who get fired over it. CEOs having to step down, that kind of thing. So I think the future of security as a business set, you know, perspective is pretty bright i think yes we 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 desperately need more people and we need more people with a diverse set of skills diverse set of backgrounds as well to bring in new blood into this space to we've been around for a while we've already got our ideas of what security is it's it's i think in many respects we need to be training that next generation on what we know so they can then build upon it and then train on to the next generation of security people who come after us because I think, you know, when I'm 90 years old, hopefully sat outside a pub somewhere thinking, oh, that was a good life. You know, let's just have a quick look in on what security's like now. I don't think I'll recognize it. (laughs) I'm still a few years off 90, I'd like to point out to anybody there thinking, oh, I wonder how far away that's going to be. But just looking at the little, the the, the amount of change in the 25 years I've been in it is is just astronomical. It's getting faster. And finally, I think tooling-wise, you're you're absolutely right. It's the next gen of stuff that I think we're waiting for and and I'm keen to see is is machine learning, AI, pulling together of technology as well, not into one package. When I do defense in depth, I like different vendors to do different things, you know. You don't want to buy one vendor entirely or you'll end up like SolarWinds, potentially allegedly, whatever the word is. But having something that can just interact with all of that and pull it together and just tell you what's going on so you can freeze you up from doing the some of the more mundane stuff to actually being able to do the job you're there to do, which is protect the business either from malicious elements internally or malicious elements externally or just random accidents that occur. Because that's one thing I think a lot of business people forget We do plan for things like power (laughs) outages. It's not necessarily malicious. It's just for some reason somebody's dug up a power cable down the road or something. I've had that before. But your disaster recovery plans that you put in place to be able to protect the organization, they will also protect you against other types of events that aren't driven by malicious actors, unless you piss off that builder by driving past him and splashing him with a puddle or something. So what are your final thoughts on where we are, where we're going?
1: So I think that you know I'm I'm looking forward to this phase of automating what we can to free up mm. the human to do what we do best, which is storytelling. Mm. And I'm also I think we're going to have a burst of diversification now, and that brings along with it experimentation. We mm-hmm. have these new ways of looking at things. We have new people coming in who are going to bring new views into it. New blood. And that, yeah. yeah, and and and, and for new problem-solving skills. Yeah. Also, and and that combined with the new technological possibilities that we have means that the next five to ten years are going to be a huge phase of experimentation, which is a fantastic thing. It's going to be a lot of novelty, and some things are going to work, others aren't, but we're going to learn a lot doing that.
0: I think at least we're going to be able to turn, turn back, as I said, when we're 90 years old and say, geez, you know... For years, nobody cared about security, and then we witnessed the, the the massive paradigm shift from, yeah, that's something we'll just do down the line if we've got time, to, no, you actually have to take this stuff seriously. Yeah, I do hope to end my career lecturing at university on a full-time basis just for the fun of it, and I can't wait to be able to, to sit down with some of those, those chaps coming up and through and just let them know what it was like back in the day, because I think... You know, even some of, the, some of the InfoSec people nowadays, you know, they don't remember things like, you know, Ipconfig slash all or some of the old commands and some of the old tricks of the trade that you used to have to, to, to do. And it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a great couple of years, assuming we survive it. And I think you're right. We're in for a bit of a wild ride. So maybe we should cover this again, this topic again in a year or two's time, see where we were, where we are now. We'll replay this and go, yeah, we were very, very wrong. Or, oh, actually, no, we were pretty accurate. You know, you never can tell. It's, as I said, (laughs) security is a wild thing. One minute, it's one thing. The next minute, boom. Somebody's found a zero-day vulnerability in something and everything changes. (laughs) Oliver... As always, it's been absolutely fantastic. Is there any anything you want to plug for uh, for your organization, for yourself? You know, you appearing in any yeah. podcast? Have you got your own material that you're releasing?
1: Um, I, I have nothing particularly about me personally in, in the moment. I, I said, as I mentioned, I've moved into a new team, mm. um, focusing more on data science and research now. So definitely expect some stuff coming out. What I do plan for the second half of the year is a paper on Cybersecurity security economics, its one of the topics I, I tend to write about. Um, I've done stuff around bug bounties. I've done stuff around um, um, zero-day supply chains. And what I'm trying to gauge this year is how is the cost of defending moved compared to the cost of attacking? And are we winning? Because the whole point of security isn't really to stop hackers. It is to make hacking unaffordable. Yeah. And I want to see how close we are. Have we actually move the goalposts in our favor or not?
0: Oh, I can't wait to read that one, mate. I can't wait to read that one. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, fantastic. Right, for all of you out there, thank you for persevering with us and and listening to us. Look after yourselves out there, everybody, and uh, we'll be seeing you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire Podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions... Please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.